0: Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past.
1: Laura Curran joining us live.
2: It's cut to the chase with Laura Curran, entertaining and informative thought provoking conversations that get right to the point.
3: Observers say her future is bright here to tell us more about it. Laura Curran.
2: Now here's Laura Curran.
3: Good afternoon everyone. So we just heard Yabansu talking about the top two stories in the news and that is the migrant crisis here in New York City and the debt ceiling. So today I want to unpack why I feel very empathetic uh, towards Mayor Eric Adams. I feel his pain about the help he is not getting dealing with the issue and later Janet is yelling about that debt ceiling. Um, We're going to Talk about what the stakes are of defaulting with financial reporter Andrew Cohen. Uh, But I want to frame both of these conversations in kind of a similar way. And it's this. Politics as performance art versus government as actually managing and operating things. Uh, And I want to tease out for a minute the difference between politics and government. I think everyone knows this intuitively, but I just want to underscore it. So very simply... By politics, I mean what you do to get voters to like you and to draw a contrast with your opponents. So it's shaking hands, it's kissing babies, it's listening to people, it's telling them why you're better than the other guy. He was a schmuck. Um, and it's what you ba- basically what you do to get elected and reelected. And by government, I mean actually doing the job. So when you're an executive, like a city mayor or a governor or county executive, as I was, it means actually running the government. Operating and managing your workforce and your resources, uh, kind of like a CEO would run a corporation. And it also means handling the inevitable crises that come your way, disease, financial downturn, storms, accidents, God forbid, war. Uh, When you're a legislator in government, it basically means voting on stuff, on budgets and policies. So really nothing new there, right? Um, but when I think about what's happening with the migrant crisis in New York City, it's Mayor Adams trying to actually manage this crisis and everyone criticizing and sniping from the sidelines without actually helping. Uh, he has, you know, he has said, uh, the question that the number one question I'm asking everyone now, did you go to Washington to get more money? What have you done for the migrants and where would you like me to house them? Uh, anyway, I was, hoping and thinking that my friend jason ortiz would be the person perfect person to talk about this jason uh you may have heard him on my podcast he's co-founder and ceo of moonshot strategies which is a new york city-based political consulting and government relations firm and he's also worked with the new york hotel trades and as we know many of the migrants are staying in the hotels around the city so jason welcome to the radio show
4: Oh my God, Laura! Thank you so much for having me back on. I but before we get into it, I want to say Janet yelling. <laughs> <mean, laughs> Janet
3: is yelling uh, about yelling, that debt she's ceiling.
4: Yelling, she's yelling about the debt ceiling. Entertaining and
3: informative as
4: always. I love the pun.
3: Thanks. You know, I actually started this radio show just so I could use that pun. Thank God, there's a debt crisis.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: well, no, thank you so much for having me back on. And I too have a great deal of empathy and very strong opinions about the, how the uh, how the mayor has been handling this migrant crisis so let's get to it
3: let's get to it so he has been criticized from the right from the left it seems like from everyone in between uh mm-hmm. without you know i remember back in the fall he when this was first starting he wanted to build those tents i think he actually did build them out in randall's island but right. then the progressive polls were like oh no nimby not in our backyard And then, you know, now he's trying with the schools, of course, the the kids and the parents don't want that, which you understand the hotels. And then you have the pundits taking swipes at that. Uh, He's trying in all these different kinds of places and he's begging for help from the federal government and really getting nothing from his fellow Democrats. So it's like everywhere he turns, everyone's got an opinion, but nobody's got a solution. So what's your take on this?
4: So I'd like to back up a little bit first, and I think, you know, be good to underscore and provide a little bit of context of where the city was and where the mayor was when this crisis started. Um, you know, the the mayor of New York City took over largely through no fault of his own. New York City at a time when there was already a huge homelessness crisis, yes, a huge mental health crisis, um, and and um, you know, as was the case all across the state and all across the country, significant crime issues that he had to deal with. So it's not as though this started. And, you know, and and our institutions and the city was in great shape to take in a ton of more people. It was already significantly stressed tax.
3: Such a good and point.
4: Then, yeah. And then you add on top of that, 60,000 uh, migrants and asylum seekers coming here uh, starting in late August of last year. of 40, 40,000 of whom are, you know, are are being placed in that system, in in in, in the homelessness system in New York City. Um, at a time when the system was already taxed. I think, you know, it was bursting at the seams to start. Mm -hmm. And I think under those circumstances, I would give the mayor extraordinarily high marks with the way that he's dealt with this crisis under those circumstances, really under any circumstances, but especially under those.
3: So why particularly high marks? What do you think he has done that maybe people don't realize?
4: Well, I think that he's been extraordinarily creative to your earlier point um, about how and where to put these people and in processing them. I think, you know, really, and he mentioned this in a recent Times article, I think the fact that since August, um, most New Yorkers, if you were to ask them, would say it wouldn't really have an opinion one way or the over over the migrant crisis. In, in other words, it's happened and people really haven't noticed it mm. um, until very, very recently. Yeah. and. and you know, I think speaks to the fact that, you know, it's it's what you don't notice.
3: Yes. That,
4: you know, it's what you don't notice that no that that I think is indicative of you having a good of you doing a good job. And I think, you know, this as being a former executive. And I think he would have largely been able to do it and continue doing it in that way, in that form, if it wasn't for the expiration of Title 42. Because, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, it the the influx of migrants New York city, it significantly slowed to about 700 per week since the last week and a half or so, it's doubled. Yeah. So now we're, we're back at a place where we're in high crisis mode.
3: And some days but, um, it's up, up to 700 a day.
4: A day. Right. Exactly. 700 a day. And, you know, and, and that number is, you know, in all likelihood will increase significantly. So, I mean, listen, you know, he's, he's, I, I think, you know, you, you pointing the finger at Democrats having no solutions and, and saying to him, you know, I you should solve this problem, but I'm not going to give you any resources or bright ideas. I think, you know, an even bigger finger should be pointed at um, Republican governors across the state, you know, across the country rather, Governor Abbott, Governor DeSantis, and others, who have very cravenly and cynically said, you know, we're, we're taking these people, and rather than accepting them and and welcoming them with open arms, as the mayor of New York and the governor of New York have done, uh, we're going to Try to score cheap political points and cynically put them on buses and send them to states like Florida, send them, to, send them to states like New York, rather, and places like Washington, D.C., and say not only are we not asked for resources, we're going to make this somebody else's problem. But Jason, and- Jason
3: Ortiz of Moonshot Strategies, I want to ask you because that, that's something a lot of people bring up to me. They say, well, I mean, they don't blame Abbott and other governors in Republican states for sending them because they're saying, hey, you're a sanctuary city. We got to deal with this every day. You think this is so great. Why don't you deal with it? A lot that, that, actually, that talking point actually gets a lot of sympathy with people and not necessarily all Republican either.
4: Well, listen, l- l- I'm going to make a little analogy here for you. Um, so let's say that you were to say to your f- entire extended family, you're welcome to visit whenever you like. And, you know, I don't know about you. Laura, but I have a huge extended family I mean, I've got cousins and aunts and uncles. And I mean, it's, I I don't, I don't know that I could name them all or even recognize (laughs) them or pull pull them out of a lineup, but I would extend the invitation, let's say over Facebook or something like that and say, anyone who wants to visit New York city from wherever the heck you're living, Florida, Puerto Rico, uh, Colorado, California, you're welcome to stay at our apartment whenever you like. And they, and, and by the way, I live in a two bedroom apartment with two other people. And they all show up on the same day. Mm. And, you know, and so, yeah, of course, I love them all dearly and love them to pieces. Even the ones you don't recognize. Even the ones <laughs> I don't recognize. But I would maybe say to them, do you think maybe, you know, this week you'd stay with my Aunt Rose out in East Brunswick, New Jersey? Do, do, do all of them have to stay here on the exact same? It doesn't mean that you love them any less. Yeah. But, but um, I think that. You know, what what Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul are doing are saying, yes, you're welcome to come here. This is a sanctuary city, New York City. But um, what Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis are doing are saying, you know, we don't want you here at all. And we're going to put you on a bus and send you to somewhere else. Because regardless of what the law of the land is, there's somebody else who does want you. And we're all sending we're sending all of them to the same place on the same day.
3: You know, it does seem like Governor Hochul is seeking to help. She um, has allocated a billion dollars. He needs uh, Mayor Adams says he needs about four point five billion dollars. So that's a significant amount. And she said that she's looking at space at CUNY and SUNY campuses to see if any anything makes sense there. So she is actually stepping up with something. Unlike the others. But I want to unpack something. So a lot of this is, you know, a lot of the migrant crisis is couched in Republican versus Democrat talking points. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you one would expect the Republicans to sort of be attacking and be adversarial on this. But one would not necessarily expect the Democrats. And so it seems to me that Mayor Adams is being criticized and punished for not helping Biden. And other Democrats with their politics on this issue, uh, you know, and Adams has been more and more outspoken about the lack of help and his frustration about that from federal officials. Um, he said on Wednesday that it was, quote, baffling that Washington officials are, quote, are not understanding what this is doing to New York City. Um, the president and the White House have failed New York City on this issue. OK, so he said that it's kind of like an emperor has no clothes moment. And it's, you know, you don't really hear that from Democrats very much. But mm-hmm. then what happens is he's punished in a, in a very small way, but a significant way. Uh He is he's got he had, he had a little title for the reelection campaign for Biden. And now all of a sudden that title is gone. He doesn't have it anymore. And and uh Biden's spokesperson is saying, well, Mayor Adams should be be more focused on attacking Republicans than on criticizing us, basically is what he said, you know. But it's almost not, like he—it's like everyone should just fall in line with the Democratic talking points. And what's lost is okay, great, but I actually have to deal with this, and you're not helping me.
4: No, that's exactly right. And listen, you know, I know that earlier today the mayor asked to sit down with with President Biden to sort some of this out. So maybe they'll sit down and come to some meeting of the minds on this and stop. Criticizing each other, which I agree is, as a good Democrat isn't any good. But you know, what do you to do if you're the mayor in this in this situation? Yeah, you can't. You can't um, like the federal government can um, print money. You can't run some kind of. You can't run a deficit. You have to pay all of your bills. You have mm-hmm. to balance the budget. And you, you know, if and and in New York City, uh, unlike many other places, there's this guarantee that anybody that comes here, um, you know, have a roof over their head, regardless of their um regardless of their immigration status uh so he, you know he he's absolutely right to to say that it's Biden to say that Eric Adams should be blaming and pointing the finger at Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis he absolutely should what they're doing is cynical and it's craven as i mentioned mm-hmm. but but he also needs help from the federal government there's no i mean what, what again what else is he supposed to do what under what under you know it under you know under what resources, and again, in addition to all the crises that I said he was dealing with before, he's dealing with a fiscal crisis crisis too in New york city um you know the the tax rolls aren't what they were, we're coming out of covid you know no one's going to work anymore, you know, office buildings are empty in new york city yeah um it's not like the city was flushed with cash to begin with, yeah, and in this instance i I would say that. Throwing money at the problem largely would solve it. So he needs the resources.
3: Do you think there is a reluctance? And we, we have a lot of heavy hitters in Congress from New York as well. Uh, do you think that there is a reluctance for powerful Democrats to talk about this issue out loud because it is so politically toxic? It is, you know, it's, if you're just looking at the polls, it is not an issue that polls well for Democrats. Do you think that makes them more reluctant to focus on it, at least publicly?
4: Um, I, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, listen, whether or not it's it's popular to talk about it or not, if you live in New York, it's inevitable. You're going to have to deal with it. I think the biggest disadvantage that congressional Democrats have is that they're just not in charge.
1: Mm. So
4: you could use the bully pul- pulpit and you could you know, yell and scream and stomp your feet and advocate for resources for the city of New York. But it really doesn't matter much if you don't control you know, the levers of funding. I mean, really, I I think, you know, the bully pulpit would certainly help. And I think there have been some Democrats who've made um, a lot of noise and have been constructive in that regard. But really, it comes down to the president. And again, I you know, it's unfortunate that this is all happening. And, you know, in what is going to be an election year for us, it's incredibly important, hugely important that we retain control of the White House, and, you know, you hate to see Democrats criticizing other Democrats, especially on hot button issues um, when 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 there's so much at stake, which is why I believe that they'll come to some accord and there'll be a meeting of the minds hopefully this week and more resources will flow to New York to deal with this problem. Um, and, you know, and all the infighting and bickering can stop.
3: Right. And there's one thing, there's one aspect that I, I think it's always important to remind people, these people who are coming to America, love this country. They see this as a place where they can succeed, where they can be safe. Uh, They've been through, I mean, there's people coming from Mexico, from Central America, from Africa, from Asia, from all over the place, coming through Mexico, coming through that southern border. Everybody has a story. And then coming here is very difficult. And basically – all they want to do is work these are human beings they are families i'm sure if anyone got to know them got to know these people they would have a lot more empathy and understanding for these people as people and i think that is something that gets lost in this story yeah it's not well, just it's I, not just polls and talking points and politics it's actual people. lives yeah. and that is something that i feel and i don't know mayor adams i met him once you know him a little better than I do. This is something I feel he really sees. This, he sees the humanity in these people, and he really does want to help them sincerely.
4: Well, so, so I listen to that. I'd, I'd make two points. First of all, I guess the one silver lining here for, for these people seeking asylum is that they wind up in New York. I mean, can you, can you imagine coming from a war-torn country, um, you know, being persecuted politically or otherwise, and winding up in Texas? I mean, it's like it's like I take one I, I take one step in Texas and say, please, let me let, let me go back. It's like hell without any of the charm.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I haven't been to Texas, so I can't say. I've, <laughs> all my exes live in Texas, but I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, all joking
4: aside, um, I would say that. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, though, the immigrant story for as long as this country has been a country, you know, immigrants come here looking for a better life. And really, unless you are a Native American, um, and there are a few of them, then everyone here is, everyone here is ancestors or or who are here at presently are immigrants or or ancestors of immigrants. And yes, that is the immigrant, that's the quintessential immigrant story. It's so true. Yeah, you come here uh, looking to make a better life for yourself, coming from, uh, you know, very difficult... Uh, political circumstances and looking to to make a better life and work hard and looking to make a better life for your family. You know, I could hear
3: folks in my audience saying, and I'm getting some calls and I'm going to take some calls later. So thank you for calling people. Uh, they're like, Hey, okay, great. Yeah. My parents, my parents came here or my grandparents came here, but they did it the right way. They did it legally. You know, Mm -hmm. there's that is sort of the, the counter argument to that. So, so just do it properly is what is what we're asking.
4: Well, I mean, I you know I'm I'm not an immigration attorney, but I do believe that the people seeking asylum here are are doing so legally. Like they're they're being processed, and you know I, I think that's splitting hairs. Um, to to be honest with you, whether you come here legally or whether you come here and you're undocumented, it's the same story, one way or the other. So, Jason, and,
3: I, I hate to cut you off, but I don't have a lot of time, Jason Ortiz. I have I have a question that I want to ask you. You have worked with the Hotel Trades Council, and a lot of the migrants are staying in hotels. How does that affect the workers in the hotels? Do you have a sense of that? Well, uh,
4: it, you know, I think that, you know, again, the the strong preference, and Mayor Adams said it, you know, uh, in, in recently in an interview in The Times, the strong preference for everyone is that hotels use be used, um, you know, for tourists. Ideally, you know, the people that are coming here and are tourists are going to hotels because they have money to spend. They can pay exorbitant room rates. They're... You know they're they're putting money into the economy. Mm -hmm. They're they're spending on restaurants and Broadway shows and the like. Um, You know I think by and large there's there I think you know I think in the neighborhood of forty five hundred out of one hundred twenty five thousand rooms right now are being used to house migrants. Um, You know I I can speak for um, you know the members of the hotel trades council. You know, everyone at the union is, is, you know, eager. You know, I can't speak for the for the members, rather. But I I believe that everyone is eager, ready, willing and able to to do their part here and try to pitch in and, you know, and do as best we can under these really terrible circumstances.
3: Yes. And and just, you know, you talked about the number of hotel rooms. Uh, Mayor Adams misspoke. You know, these things happen. We all misspeak sometimes. And he said that half of the rooms are being taken by migrants. That that's you know, as you just said, is clearly not the case. But that's what he gets criticized for. So it's like it's criticizing him for miscounting the deck chairs on the Titanic. Well, that's not really the point. You know, that's not really helpful, uh, yeah, guys. And
4: spokesperson, yeah, and I think the, the, the spokesperson then clarified it was forty percent of the available rooms. Right. You know, of, of the rooms that were able. I mean, but whatever. Again, not you're the, right. It's yeah, like, it's like oh, yeah, everyone's such really a
3: smarty pants. Point.
4: Yeah, it's really, it's really besides the point. The point is we have to figure out what to do here. And, and, you know, you said it earlier. It's like I don't want them here. Like do something with them, but I don't want to deal with it. It's yeah. really good to constructive.
3: Jason Ortiz, co-founder and CEO of Moonshot Strategies. I want to thank you so much for joining us on Cut to the Chase, and I'd love to have you back. And, and then, then
4: whenever you want me back. All I right. It, all it. right, I will
3: invite you and you will come. Up next, Janet is yelling. I can't say that enough. Uh will political theater and a game of macho man chicken throw the nation into default for the first time in its history or will Biden and McCarthy be able to one come up with a deal and two sell it to the rabble-rousers of their respective parties? Coming up next on Cut to the Chase after the break. Laura Curran joining us live.
2: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
3: All right. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. I am Laura Curran. And the other big story that everybody is following, there's endless news coming about the debt ceiling. Uh, so what exactly is at stake with this? If, if the nation, if this great country of ours defaults on it's debt. What does that actually mean? So economists warn, this is according to the Washington Post, they're warning that the shock would cause a recession, torpedo the financial system, put Social Security checks for seniors on hold, cause federal workers to be furloughed, and send mortgage rates soaring. So basically, really bad for everyone. Uh, Janet Yellen is saying, she's yelling about this, I'm telling you, she's saying it could it could quote crack open the foundations upon which our financial systems is built financial system is built she's very anxious this comes across when you hear her quoted she she talks very quietly and very slowly but you can hear the anxiety and i feel the anxiety and to help us understand what all of this actually means is andrew cohen who has also been on my podcast and he's very smart on these matters he's a reporter for the commercial observer and was also a finance reporter at the Bond Buyer. So, Andrew, uh, how are you, first of all?
2: Yes, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you, Laura. I'm in uh, Las Vegas at the moment, actually, for a conference. I have a feeling this might be one of the topics that's brought up.
3: I bet it is, because what I'm hearing is a lot of investors are betting that this stalemate could inject a lot of volatility in the markets, even before – that June
2: 1st deadline. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and the same thing happened in, in 2011, uh, which I touched on in that uh, podcast, uh, where, you know, the U.S. lost one of its uh, AAA credit ratings, S&P uh, upgraded them, just, be, just for coming close to, um, you know, nearing that deadline. So just imagine if, if the deadline passes this time, uh, then you're looking at, uh, you know, multiple, Oh, Andrew, down. Andrew,
3: you? you're breaking up a little bit. We're going to call you back. Let's see if we can get a better signal. We're going to call you right back. All right. Great. Um, So you may have noticed, you may have read this. I was just uh, catching up on the news before I went on the air that Biden and McCarthy are actually going to be meeting tomorrow, Monday afternoon. Uh, They're, they're calling it a, what the Wall Street Journal is calling uh, to make a last ditch deal. I certainly hope that that is not the case. Um There has been some optimism coming from both sides. Uh, McCarthy, in his comments on Friday, this is uh, House House Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy. He didn't specify uh returning discretionary spending to the earlier levels that he had wanted before. Anyway, he's what I mean to say is he's actually given a little bit. The president has also given a little bit, saying he would not link cutting spending to a debt ceiling deal. And so there so. Andrew, you're back. We were just talking. I was just talking to the audience about uh, the meeting that's going to happen. And there's been some optimism. It's almost like we're getting mixed signals from these two guys, though, because they'll say, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're we're having great conversation. This is going well. And then you have Biden coming out and saying, oh, but the MAGA Republicans, these extremists, they want to do this. And then McCarthy saying, no, there is no deal. Uh, Do you have a sense of where all of this actually stands?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it's a lot. No, you know, a game in a lot of ways. Um, you know, both kind of kind of really digging in. I think it. Oh boy, you know, will think, be a deal,
3: Andrew. We're uh, losing you. We're losing you. Can you go to a place where you have more bars by any chance? You're just you're just kind of going in and out a little bit over there in Vegas. It's the a lot going on there. Yeah. All right, we're gonna try you back. You want, you want to try it one more time, Christian? What do you think? All right. So there's a lot to talk about. The other part, the other aspect that I am really interested in is what I was talking about earlier in the show as, as, you know, politics is performance, art and government is actually managing. This is something that actually has to be managed because the stakes are very, very high. Uh, But will we have the extremes of both parties undermining any solution that these two guys can hammer out? that's something that i know is very concerning and and you got to think that a lot of what they're saying if, whether it's biden talking about maga extremists or it's mccarthy talking about we've got to have a work requirement um that you know all of these is is partly driven by politics is partly driven by polls uh one thing that does poll very well is the idea of work requirements. And, uh, there are the Democrats are kind of being coached in how to talk about this. So instead of talking about the debt ceiling as a debt ceiling, talk about default, talk about America defaulting. Instead of talking about work requirements for benefits, talk about benefit theft, right? That doesn't sound so good. Uh, but it really doesn't matter how you talk about it or what you call these things, it's not a political game. This is something that actually has real consequences. You know, as we saw with seniors potentially losing their benefits, with mortgage rates uh, going sky high, with uh, federal workers being furloughed, work not getting done, Uh, not to mention the reputational hit that this country will take. I mean, people may want to criticize us, but we are definitely still the leaders in the world Will we be in a weakened position in conflicts overseas? Will we not have the same heft that we should if we can't get this together? Uh, the other aspect of this is this game of chicken. And, you know, if you've been around the past few years, we've had debt ceiling talks before. Uh, they've always been resolved. It's almost like, OK, it becomes a little bit like white noise. However, this one just feels different. The uh, warnings from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen are, Yellen are that much more scary and dire, and and the politics is at such a, a heightened a heightened state these days that that these things just seem to carry a little more heft, or this threat just seems a little bit a little bit more real. Um, so let's see, Christian, how are we doing with our guest? OK, all right. We're trying another number. So that's great. Um, so I like to think I like to think this. so. So Kevin McCarthy has been in politics for a long time. We know that Joe Biden has been in politics for a very long time. Let's just think the best. Let's be very optimistic. These are both let's say these are both sensible men who want to make an agreement where they both save the country and save face. OK, that would be ideal. But then that's step one. Step two is the they've got to bring along the people in their parties to vote for this as well. So uh, I think the progressives, those on the far left of the Democratic Party, are afraid that Biden will give away too much to make a deal, like uh, making sure that there are work requirements for some benefits. Uh, Republicans want tax cuts and spending cuts and work r- requirements, uh, according to the Washington Post. The House Freedom Caucus has called for an end to negotiations over the debt ceiling entirely, saying there should be no further discussion. Can you imagine? Um, Until the Senate acts on a House bill that would raise the borrowing limit while sharply cutting federal spending. Okay, that seems really difficult. On the left, there's a growing coalition of Senate Democrats calling for President Biden to prepare to invoke the 14th Amendment, So this is an amendment that says the government always has to pay what it owes, basically. Now, you may have heard about this. This is a risky move. This would be a very risky move because it might not be upheld, and it will take a long time, and we could reach that very well, could reach that June 1 deadline before any resolution on the 14th Amendment is done. So, Andrew, you're back.
2: Yes, hopefully you're clear this time. You
3: are clear as a bell. Um so you know I'm talking I'm kind of like drawing a line between the politics of this and then also the real life stakes of this. The folks that you're talking to, your sources, what are they most concerned about and how do they think they get out of this mess? We get out of this I, mess.
2: Yeah, I mean I think the biggest concern actually my my colleague Brian Tapster uh, did a did a great piece on this um last week about uh you know on the commercial real estate um uh, effect of this, but you know we we just had a you know a regional bank crisis or, or we're still going through that That's in a right. lot of ways, you know, That's right. we had three banks, you know, Silicon Valley, Signature, uh, first Republic and, and, you know, there's others that might be at risk. So there's already, you know, some, some credit challenges to begin with, but you add a, uh, you know, a, a U.S. default on top of that. And you're really talking about, uh, you know, even, even more troubles for these banks, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of underwriting loans, cause obviously higher, uh, financing costs, and then those their existing loans are going to be at risk of default. So that's, you know, that's one, uh, you know, obviously one major concern, but also beyond that, just uh, from a more, uh, more granular level, just the idea that, you know, U.S. treasuries, they've always, you know, been looked at as kind of risk-free, uh, risk-free right. bonds. And a default would really underline that, that um, assumption and just, You know, I think that that could have a real psychological effect, you know, for a
3: while. It's got to be so frustrating, Andrew Cohen uh, from Commercial Observer, because these banking executives uh, have big jobs. I was actually having dinner with a friend who has a big job at a big bank. Uh, They have to actually make sure things run properly. They have lots of regulation, but there's there's their jobs carry a lot of high stakes. And it must be frustrating for them to be watching this politics, this political game of chicken going on when they know what is at stake. Uh, are they do you do you hear that frustration from them?
2: Yeah, I I, th- I think so. I think, you know, there's a the feeling that like there's already a lot of challenges to begin with, you know, with regional. Ban- obviously, the regional bank crisis, like like I mentioned, uh, just, you know, interest rates have been going up. Uh, aggressively since last, um, uh, last, uh, you know, June of 2022, especially. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, while there might be a pause in that, um, in the near term, you know, they're not coming down anytime soon, that's for sure. So it, there's already a lot of challenges, uh, to begin with. Uh, and then you add this on top of that, it would just, you know, like, I know you mentioned that this would, this would signal a, a recession. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways it would be a depression. if Yeah. If the, if it does, uh, you know if if we do uh, pass that deadline,
3: are the banks taking precautionary steps? Are they putting things in place just in case?
2: Yeah, I think I think the you know the larger banks in particular, you know, they have the um, you know they have the means, obviously more of the means to uh, uh, to you know with reserves and and whatnot to prepare for this. Um, but the regional banks, you know, some of them are 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 in a real tough place now you know they, mm-hmm. they uh already there was a lot yeah i mean you know after what happened with um with silicon valley and signature in particular there was uh, a lot of people concerned about uh just the overall health of regional banks so there were there were some uh, uh p- deposits uh that were pulled um you know things have stabilized a bit since then but um uh, you know i think there's uh but there's there's definitely um you know, they're the ones I think that, you know, might get hurt by this the
3: mm-hmm. most. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think, you know, it's sort of easier to sell the GOP position in terms of talking points. And most most polls show that most people agree with the position that, look, you got to cut spending to curtail your debt. People can relate to that because that's what they have to do in their own lives. They can't spend money they don't have. So they have to cut back buying stuff when they don't have enough money. Um and I think that's why you see the Democrats wanting to use different language, not calling it a debt ceiling, calling it default, not call you know, calling it benefit theft instead of work requirement. Uh anyway, we'll see how all of this pans out. Andrew Cohen, I wanna thank you so much. We'll get you back again and we'll make sure you're on a landline sure. and don't have too much fun in Vegas, okay?
2: That's <laughs> <I'll> right. <try. laughs> Thanks thank you, Laura.
3: All right, you got it. Coming up next, I'm borrowing an idea from Bill O'Reilly. I'm gonna share with you something that you probably don't know but is really important to know on the global scene coming up next after the break on cut to the chase and i'm taking your calls 800-848-WABC i see some of you are on hold please hang on i'm coming to i'm coming for you bye Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the
2: Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
3: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So I'm borrowing a gimmick, a special feature from Bill O'Reilly, who, as uh, loyal WABC listeners know, has a great show here on WABC. Um, Something you might not know. I want to talk about the country of Azerbaijan in the South Caucasus. Uh, it is bordered by Russia to the north, Iran to the south. So obviously it's in a very important position. There's about t- 10 million, 10.4 million people who live there. Uh, the vast majority of the country's population is Muslim, but the government and all major political parties are secularist. It has a high rate of economic development, of literacy, and a low rate of unemployment and prides itself on gender equality. Uh very interesting place. Now, one, there's a conflict that has been brewing, and I'm wondering if anyone in this audience has even knows about this or has been paying attention to this. Conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, Armenia is to the west of, of Azerbaijan. They were both part of the USSR, and when that dissolved in, tw- in 1991, conflict between those two countries erupted, as often happens when empires fall. Uh, The conflict and this, I'm really simplifying. This is over an area called Nagoro Karabakh uh, with, with this within this area is within the internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan and is home to 10 tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians. So there has been some fighting and skirmishing. There's been some serious fighting, but there was a ceasefire in 2020. Now skirmishes have broken out again. Um, Having to do with a checkpoint on the road to this region, so the heavy hitters in the world stage are getting involved. Two weeks ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with uh, both countries' foreign ministers. The presidents of both of both Azerbaijan and Armedia, Armenia are meeting with France uh, President France French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Meeting on June one, um, so. It's important for so many reasons, given its geography, given the fact that it has a lot of natural gas, which Europe needs since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's important that this remains peaceful, I think. So to tell us a little bit more about this and explain the importance to us here in America about this, this potential conflict that could get worse is Elner Mamadov. He is deputy foreign minister of the country of Azerbaijan. Mr. Mamadov, welcome to Cut to the Chase.
0: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me.
3: So, was my little synopsis correct? Did I make any mistakes there?
0: Well, uh, let me add something. Um, uh, In general, you are absolutely correct that we are located at the geostrategically important uh, part of the world. We are, in fact, the only country that borders both Russia and Iran. Hmm. We are at the crossroads in the South Caucasus uh, between the East and the West. And being out of those three countries, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan's GDP accounts for 70% of the regional GDP.
3: Wow,
0: 70%. Um, uh, Yeah. That's quite significant. Fossil fuel and now
3: work.
0: Working actively on transition to renewable energy, and in fact, uh, currently acting as an one of the major alternative suppliers of natural gas to Europe, in light of the war between Russia and Ukraine.
3: So much of uh, Europe, conflict, much we, of Europe, is relying yeah. on Azerbaijan for fuel, for cooking and for heating. So it's it's very important to this this country is very important to to Europe basically functioning.
0: That is correct. In the early years after we restored our independence uh, from the after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the U.S. Uh, supported our uh, important infrastructure, energy infrastructure projects that would allow us to bring the uh, rich reserves of the Caspian Sea to Europe. So we built together. Uh, with large investors, oil and gas pipelines. And the last um, landmark project that we completed in December 2020 was exactly the one that now helps us to transport natural gas to Europe. That is one is Southern Gas Corridor, which is an integrated gas pipeline consisting of three pipelines, that takes the natural gas from the Caspian Sea basin to Europe. Last year, we signed an MOU with with the European Union in order to double our exports. Currently, we export hmm. twelve billion cubic meters, and we are aiming to increase that number to twenty in the coming years.
3: So, what are the oh, what you. are the stakes if if the conflict with Armenia uh, worsens? What are the stakes for Europe?
0: Uh, Well, just as a short reminder, Armenia invaded and occupied 20% of internationally recognized territories of Azerbaijan in early 90s Mm. at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, The almost three decades of negotiations didn't yield any result. And in the fall of the year 2020, uh, as a result of a, of a six-week war, we liberated our international recognized territories and currently investing a lot in uh, uh, rebuilding and rehabilitating those territories. In fact, by now we have invested 6.6 6 billion US dollars uh, in bringing life to those territories. Those territories are heavily contaminated with mines. Mm. So that's one of the challenges that we have, and also the fact that during the years of occupation, unfortunately, uh, almost nine cities were obliterated by Armenia. In order to prevent ethnic Azerbaijanis to return home, almost 800,000 people were ethnically cleansed from those territories. Mm. And now we are in the, uh, in the process of bringing our compatriots back to their homeland. So uh, we are not interested in any further escalations. We are actively advancing the peace agenda. In fact, Secretary, Secretary Blinken he uh, he has hosted he has hosted us a few weeks ago uh, in here in Washington D.C. and uh, we were engaged uh, over the course of four days over the negotiations uh, of a, a future comprehensive future peace agreement, uh, and that continued with the meeting. Uh, S- uh, that was hosted by the president of
3: the... I'm, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm speaking and with... Those,
0: uh, those uh, engagements continue.
3: I'm speaking with El- El- Elner Mamadov, Deputy Foreign Minister of Azerbaijan. And as you mentioned, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with officials from Azerbaijan. The president of Azerbaijan is meeting with Macron and, and uh, German Chancellor Scholz. Why do you think in the one minute we have left these heavy hitters are getting involved and wanting to make sure that this conflict is resolved as quickly as possible.
0: Because it is in common and shared interest of all those who are involved to see the prosperous, stable South Caucasus, because that would encourage the regional cooperation, and that is in the interest of both the the U.S., Right. In the European Union
3: and not and to, not all to mention the natural
0: the gas yeah as as well as because of that but that is not the only reason because we right. are an important player in this region and the region itself uh, by definition is a geo geostrategically important one
3: El Mamadov, I want to thank you so much for your time and for enlightening us and I really um I wish you all of the best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good luck. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, I think we got to take a break. And when we come back, it's going to be a quick break. We've got John, James, Joe, Robert, and others waiting to talk, and I want to talk to you, so hang on. Call 800-848-WABC if you want to chat about anything you've heard or anything else.
0: Cut to the chase. Laura Curran joining us live.
2: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran All right, on James. 77 WABC.
3: Hello, welcome back to Cut to the Chase. All right, best part of the show for me is talking to you, because without you, we're nothing. James Yonkers, what's on your mind?
1: Yes, hi. Uh, I'm calling about, uh, you know, we. I can't say too much about the homeless. I mean, the homeless uh, population. Let's just take California, for instance. 180,000 people, right? And we're not stopping the incoming people coming from the border. Now, what's going to happen with that? Isn't that a recipe for disaster? We have bank failures. We're in debt, $32 trillion. Where are we going?
3: Yeah, this causes, I mean, it's a good question. It This causes a lot of anxiety and a lot of uncertainty, um, especially when there doesn't seem like a great plan to handle it.
1: Well, that's what I'm afraid of.
3: Can't argue I'm with you. We're
1: going to bust. I'm afraid we're going to bust.
3: Yeah, I just hope the people in charge, you know, enough enough with the talking points and the political finger pointing and the blaming and the shaming. Like, how about let's just solve it once and for all. There has not been an immigration deal in decades. They can't get it together. It's really frustrating. James, thanks for calling. We're going to go to Robert in Suffolk County. Hey, Robert, where are you in Hi. Suffolk?
1: I'm here. In Riverhead.
3: Riverhead. Nice. What's up? Uh,
1: until Curtis Leewa had told the town supervisor about the immigrants coming to the hotel. Yvette
3: Aguilar, if I'm correct, right? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yvette Aguilar. Um, they were going to come, but now they're not. Because uh, that would violate, violate well, town housing laws. See,
3: Robert, that's the interesting thing. So you have... Okay, so earlier I was talking about how Mayor Adams has this bag of trouble that he has to deal with. So we got the governor sending him migrants. He's trying to send migrants to other places, Uh, Rockland County, Orange County. They're saying, no way, we don't want it. Riverhead, no way, we don't want it. Which I completely understand as a former Nassau County executive. I totally get that because it's a huge responsibility with, you know, yes, the city said they're going to pay for it, but it's still a lot of resources. But the question is, (laughs) who's actually helping Who's actually helping? You know, I have empathy for all of them. And in, you know, if I were county executive in Nassau, you know, I would have to have some tough conversations with the mayor about this. So I understand where the supervisor is coming from. But at the end of the day, it's not solving the it's not solving the problem, right?
1: I have a plan to solve it.
3: What is it? Share.
1: Immigration, illegal immigration has always been is now and will continue to be a law enforcement problem.
0: Mm.
1: So since the federal government will not enforce the law, it leaves it up to the states and localities. We have to detain these immigrants, illegals first, especially the ones who have been arrested for crimes, who are not bail eligible under federal law. They have to be held.
3: I mean, that's one solution, and it's but it would basically be the result of federal inaction causing the local jurisdictions to take action. And this, Robert, Robert from Riverhead, is absolutely one option. All right, uh, I think we have time for Andrew in New Jersey, Stanhope. What's up? My
5: o- my opening statement, and then uh, I'll close quickly. Why you're a disgrace as a journalist? Oh. Well, my opening state, well, that's
3: not very nice or respectful, but go ahead.
5: You're the one that is a disgrace, not me. I'm just a messenger. I love the immigrants. My wife is a mig- not a migrant. She's an immigrant, and my ex-girlfriend and my family, they're literal immigrants, migrants. They're not figurative, like your guest was saying. And, w- and the red states, they didn't invite illegal immigrants. They invite legal immigrants, so they're not their relatives. And how many were actually bused from red states? Just a, a few busloads. Come on, that's not like hundreds of thousands or 150,000. That's a tiny number. And lastly, what um, you could mail me and Jason can mail me a check. We have to pay our immigration fees. Again, we don't begrudge illegal immigrants. I actually like them much better than the white liberals in Manhattan and Jason, the weird, narky, fake news guy. I'll take them any day. I actually want them. But we paid the fees. Poor people, like my ex-girlfriend, Brenda, from Guatemala, she had to pay her her whole lawyer fee. She had to pay for her own. So you guys, I'll give you my address. You guys can mail, or I'll give you Brenda's address. You can mail her a check for the fees she had to pay. And why you're a disgrace as a journalist, what number is Adams spending billions of dollars on how many undocumented billions in the B and you're not doing that on the front page.
3: We're running out of time but I hear what you're saying. I am not, you know, you remind me of people who used to email me and I would, there was always this one guy who would email, you're a disgrace and I always wanted to correct his grammar because it was always Y-O-U-R a disgrace (laughs) but I never did. Anyway, Andrew, thanks for calling. Hope you uh, have a great day. And you listeners, thanks for calling in. Thanks for listening. Uh, To cut to the chase, we'll be back next week with a whole other episode. Have a great week.